So, as you can see from the board tonight, what we're doing is we're doing dispensational premillennialism. Uh, we have looked, I know you don't want to be reminded of this, but we have looked at postmillennialism. And postmillennialism, remember, teaches that Jesus is going to come back after the millennium. Okay? So Jesus is going to come back after the millennium. But the church, basically, the Holy Spirit through the church and its witness, is going to bring in the millennium. Okay? We've also looked at our millennialism. And our millennialism also teaches that um, there's no future millennium as far as after the second coming. There's no future millennium, okay? Same thing as post-millennialism teaches, but (coughs) with this difference. They do not believe that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. They actually, many of them, will believe that there may even be a dip, an apostasy, uh, before the second coming of Christ. But once Christ comes back, He's going to set up his new heaven and new earth just the way post-millennialists teach that. So if I was going to uh, diagram that, I would say that you have the cross, that you have you know, the trajectory of history in, uh, in post-millennialism. That's just, uh, sorry. So you have the second coming here, okay? And you have the new heavens. If I just put new creation for new heavens and earth, will that do? Mm-hmm. Alright. So in, in uh, post-millennialism, post-M, okay, the church, it's really the Holy Spirit using the church. Okay, I don't want to misrepresent it. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing it through the church. Okay, brings in the millennium and we put millennium in scare quotes because they really, they're not, they're very fairy about whether it's going to be a thousand years. I don't care, you know, because spiritualize an awful lot of other things so it's not the big deal to them. But no millennium after the second coming. Do you see that? In our millennialism, okay, basically this arrow continues to the second coming and all of this is already the millennium. Do you see? So the periods between the first and second coming is the millennium. So do you see the difference here? Okay. Uh, post-millennialists don't believe that all of this is a millennium. They believe the church will bring the millennium in and then Jesus will return, then new heavens, new earth. Our millennialists believe we're in the millennium, which is basically the church age. Christ comes back, new heavens and new earth. So, both of them teach the same thing about the uh, what happens after the second coming. They deny a millennium after the second coming. So in that way, they're both our millennial views. Okay? But uh, they're all also both post-millennial views <laughs> because they both believe that uh, Christ comes back after the millennium. Do you see? 
It's just their interpretation of the millennium that's different. Yeah? Sure. Okay? And, and because of this, this is why they can use the same arguments, basically, the, the same scriptures on nearly everything. They interpret the Old Testament basically the same way. They, you know, they use the typology basically the same way. Uh, they even inter- you know, they, they change out arguments. So some uh, post-millennial arguments will be used by our millennialists and some our millennial arguments will be used by post-millennialists. Okay? The cosmic temple idea that I've showed you already uh, is employed by our millennialists but it really fits nicely to a post-millennialist view as well. So there's that. We've done that. And then we did the uh, historic premillennial view and the historic premillennial view says, no, we're not having that. Um, we're not in the millennium. Okay? So you have the period between the first and second comings. Christ comes back and then you have the millennium. Okay? And then you have the new creation. After that, okay? Sorry about my writing. But sometimes this is again, is it a thousand years? For some people it's a thousand years, others don't really care. You know, it might be, might not be. I read that to you. Um, so they hold to that view, okay? That's, so that's pre-millennium. Jesus comes back pre, before the millennium. Okay? But because the historic pre-millennialists they believe that the one people of God generally, so they will use, uh, you know, any any argument that says that there's a differentiation between Israel as a nation and the church, they will reject that. There's no differentiation between Israel and the church in the millennium, according to them. It's all one people of God. Therefore, any passages which seem to allude to that, they're going to interpret in the same way as these guys. Okay. That's where we part company with the historic premillennialists because they're not consistent in their interpretations. Okay. Now, I, later on, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what's called progressive dispensationalism. <laughs> Sorry. And I might even throw in a little bit. Well, I, I, there's no point in me saying anything about what's called progressive covenantalism because it's basically our millennialism. Um, and a new covenant theology. But um, I will say something about progressive dispensationalism later on, okay? Which is strongly premillennial, but uh, is it dispensational? It's a different kind of dispensationalism, I would argue. All right, so th- this is what we've covered. All right, I'm just crunching my little thing here. Let's remove this. And uh, so what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to give you an overview of the end times view from dispensationalism. And uh, I'm also going to include my version the biblical covenantal view. And the reason, there's a reason for that. Um, you're going to see, uh, I accept basically everything 
that dispensational premillennialism teaches on the end time. So I'm not going to add a bunch of stuff. What I am going to do is show you how uh, the dispensations don't drive the system the covenants do. Okay, so that's what I'll add. <coughs> okay, are we relaxed? We're sitting down and we're taking a nice deep breath and we're ready with our pens. All right. This is the cross, the first coming of Christ, okay? And what we'll do is that we'll put this arrow down here for, the, if I put SC or SA, which one would you prefer? SC for second coming or second advent? Second coming. Coming, okay. Second coming it is. So, this is what we're waiting for and we're somewhere here. Yeah? All right. If you'll turn first to Isaiah chapter, we'll go to Isaiah 53 and then we'll we'll backtrack just a, a little bit. So Isaiah 53. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah 53, you know what that's about, don't you? You know that that's about the sufferings of Christ on the cross. That's the first coming, or most of it is certainly the first coming. But go back into chapter 52, look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. And then verses 14 and 15 go into the fact that his visage was marred more than any man and he'll sprinkle many nations and so on. But then it says, kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard shall they shall consider. And that one is, you know, that's a little ambiguous. We're not sure is that first coming or second coming. Kings really didn't shut their mouths at Jesus at the first coming. You know, most of them didn't even, hadn't even heard of him. And, uh, you know, the, none of the Herods or anything were particularly put out, too bothered about him. Um, so this, I think, is more second coming, but that, that's up for grabs, maybe. What about this verse 13? B area, where it says, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. I think that that is a reference to Jesus, the servant. Notice he's called the servant there. That's the servant being exalted, not by God, but by men. Okay? Which would be his second coming. When he comes, the servant comes in his power. All right, you don't have to accept that, but that's where I go with that, and then it goes into that first coming. So this this actually this first coming, second coming stuff happens all the time in the Old Testament, as I've shown you in previous lessons, and I'll show you again. Um, but I think this is one of those areas where um, it's the first coming 
which is the major prophecy in this part of Isaiah, rather than the second coming. If you want to look at a second coming passage, which is is a little bit of the first coming, but most of it second coming, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 would be a good place to, to look at that. <clears throat> All right. So, at the first coming, he uh, he dies for sinners and he divides the spoil with the strong, verse 12, and um, he... He is satisfied, verse 11, with the labor of his soul. So he has some kind of satisfaction, some kind of reward for what he has endured. Alright? So just to bring that out to you. So there's the cross. That's where we start. Okay. Now with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, (coughs) something happened. In Acts chapter 2, you have the descent of the Holy Spirit, okay? And you have the beginning of the church, okay? Why do I say that the church began in Acts chapter 2? Excuse me. I believe the church began in Acts chapter 2 because that is when the Holy Spirit came and... Uh, indwelt the believers and they preached and people were saved. They were converted on that day, a few thousand of them. And then you see the same thing in Acts chapter 3. Okay, You see mass conversions uh, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, The resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. If you read the early chapters of Acts, it is the resurrection which is the main theme of the preaching. Now, if the resurrection is the main theme of the preaching, okay, and people are believing that this Jesus who died is the Messiah, because they're Jews, remember, and this is the one God's exalted by raising him from the dead, then they accept him as their Messiah, as their Christ, okay? They remember sins also, you know, the forgiveness of sins and so on is also preached. This means that in order for the message of salvation to the church to be preached, so that the church could begin... Jesus had to die and he had to rise again and ascend. Yes? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now all of these points that I'm going to point out to you, they all, we could take, you know, an hour to deal with each one, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas, there's your resurrection, and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, whom the greater part remained to the present, but found some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also. So, uh, this is the gospel, and the gospel that, that uh, you know, the good news that, that Paul is saying that we believed is the witness testimony of all these people that saw Christ risen. And Christ rose because he died. <laughs> and he died for our sins. Do you see? That's the kind of the logic of it. Um, but so this has to be believed, which this could not be preached in the Old Testament. Do you see? Could not be preached in the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't come, Jesus hadn't died, Jesus hadn't risen. Okay. Romans chapter 6. Actually, before we do that, 1 Corinthians 13. Since we're, oh, 1 Corinthians 12, since we're closer to that. 1 Corinthians 12. <coughs> verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are also one body, that is uh, Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And goes on and talks about the body even more. He's talking about the body of Christ there, which is the church. Yes? Okay. Now, you can't have the body of Christ, the church, if Christ hasn't been raised. Do you see? And uh, you can't have the Holy Spirit who baptizes us if the Holy Spirit hasn't been given at Pentecost. Do you see? And we have the church, everyone that's, that's born again is a member of the church, okay, the body of Christ. And therefore, they have the Holy Spirit within them. That happens after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said in, in John 16, unless I go, the Holy Spirit will not come. You see? Alright, go to uh, Romans chapter 6. This is a sanctification verse, but it's based on what has already occurred. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now this baptism, by the way, is, the, is spirit baptism, the one I've just read to you about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Okay? This is not water baptism. Okay? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead, notice there's the resurrection, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, it's impossible for us as Christians to walk in newness of life if Christ hasn't been raised. There's no newness of life to walk in unless he's been raised. Do you see? So the Spirit's work in giving us newness of life can't happen until Christ has been raised. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So do you see that, speaking here to the church, that uh, the church must be, the body of Christ must be a post-resurrection phenomenon. Right. Uh, one other passage, I think uh, I can find it quickly. Uh, John 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's see if I can find it here. Sometimes I can find it, sometimes I don't. I'm looking at the, I'm looking for the, the Holy Spirit that, uh, He was with you and will be in you. That, that passage. Is it in 16? 14, 16. Let's have a look. I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. Now that's not the one. Uh, and, but 17 is. The Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot see because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, future tense, in you. Do you see that? So, he's with you. In what sense is the Holy Spirit with them? Uh, He's with them because they are seeing the Holy Spirit's work in the miraculous healings and so on that are going on. They're seeing the, the Spirit's work. But the Holy Spirit is not yet in them. They are not transformed. Do you see? When do they get transformed? After the resurrection at Pentecost. They become different, don't they? They, You know, Peter's carrying away. He wants to pack it in. Now he wants to preach. Do you see? That's the Holy Spirit's work. So, can you see that? Um, now, now, dispensationalists, by the way, they'll, they'll go to that quite rightly, in my view, and they'll say this shows a dispensational change, an administrative change in the way God works. I would agree with that. Jade White Pentecost, a very fine scholar, he puts a lot of uh, onus on that. Uh, but, But my issue is that it doesn't necessarily mean that an administration is driving what ha- what is happening. Do you see? It's just the identification of some of a change. Okay, an important change for sure. But it it, it doesn't mean that that's what's driving uh, what's going to happen. Do you see? Uh, so it's more descriptive of what's happened than prescriptive actually giving you an idea of what's what's it about and where is it going and so on <clears throat> anyway moving along what we have therefore 
in our timeline, let's use red, is we have the descent of the Holy Spirit, okay, and the church, the body of Christ. So the church is inaugurated here. There could not be a church before the resurrection of Christ because the church is built on the gospel of the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ and, and requires Christ to go, ergo, be resurrected, die and be resurrected before the Holy Spirit descends to do the work that he's doing today. Do you see? So that's what the will be in you is, is important. Remember Jesus also in, in Matthew 16, 18, he says, on this rock, upon this rock, I will, future, build my church. And that rock, by the way, is either the testimony of, Jesus, of, of Peter, the testimony of Peter, or it is the identification of uh, of uh, of Peter's confession, okay? Because uh, Peter says, "You are the Christ, the Son of God," and Jesus said, in reply to that, that you didn't get this from men; you got this from my Father. Do you see? And so that could be the rock as well. I tend to go for that—the fact that it's it's the Father revealing this truth. Uh, that is the rock. But either. Either's fine. I think they're both parts of the same thing, actually. So you got the church. Alright. The church is the body of Christ. You cannot have the, the body of Christ as the church with, with the Holy Spirit in all of us without the work of Christ on the cross and then the resurrection. Is that, is that clear? Alright. Um, now, straight away, somebody would want to object and would want to say, hold on, what you're implying is that there was a different gospel before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What about the gospel that we find in the gospels? Glad you asked. Because, guess what? When Jesus told the disciples that he was going to die, okay, what did he also tell them? He told them not to tell anybody. Okay? He told them not to tell anybody. So they weren't proclaiming it. So whatever gospel they were preaching, it wasn't about the death of Christ. Never mind the resurrection of Christ, which they didn't really get. You know? How do we know that? Because once he died, again, they wanted to, all, they wanted to load the van and go home, didn't they? So, um, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, let's go to, um, this just means good, good news. Let's look in the gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist preaches it, Matthew 3. Uh, 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then quotes passage, a new covenant passage from Isaiah chapter 40. Okay, and he's baptizing them and they're confessing their sins in view of the fact that, Je- that, that Jesus is going to come. But notice, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he is, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the next verse defines what the fire is. It, it has to do with judgment. Okay? The winnowing fan, thoroughly clean as threshing floor and so on. Burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's your, there's your definition of what he means by fire. That's judgment. That's second coming. Okay? First and second comings are, brought, are put together even with John the Baptist. There's a reason for that. But here he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's future. Do you see? Then in chapter, um, well, same chapter. <laughs> um, no, it isn't, sorry. Um, where are we? Here we are, verse 17 of chapter 4. After the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John the Baptist. Same message. What is he not preaching? He's not preaching the resurrection and he's not even preaching the crucifixion. Okay? Now, our millennialists and post-millennialist friends and so on, they will really want him to be preaching the resurrection, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but he doesn't. Okay, so that's not what people are believing that are believing in him. They're believing that he's the Messiah. Okay, and that he is going to bring in the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom that was expected because of the Old Testament prophecies. Um, Chapter 10 of Matthew, this is our last little on this. Remember he's sending the people out and he says, verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Well, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's exactly what Jesus and John the Baptist were preaching. That makes sense if this is the Davidic kingdom, doesn't it? That's why you don't go to the Gentiles preaching it or to the Samaritans preaching it. And then all of these signs, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely have received, freely give. And uh, God's going to provide for them and so on. And then judgment if they don't accept the preaching. (coughs) Excuse me. And then he tells them, What they don't want to hear, he tells them about persecution. Verse 18, or 17, and uh, down to verse 23. But in 23, he says something interesting. He says, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, 
you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right. Well, how do we interpret this? Well, certain people will say that, uh, well, they, the Son of Man must have come back then, spiritually, because they did go through the cities of Israel. But actually, did they? And did they go through the cities of Israel preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Uh, probably not. They didn't go through the cities of Israel preaching that. They went through the cities of Israel preaching that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, he died for the, your sins, he's the, he's the Christ, the Messiah, and he's raised, been raised from the dead. Okay? They did that in the book of Acts. But you don't see them doing this during Jesus' lifetime. They're just following Jesus around. Okay? And yes, they're sent out here, but they're not sent out throughout the whole of Israel doing this. So what's going on here is that we have an example of long-term and short-term prophecy. Uh, Jesus said, you know, go and do this and, and preach this. And then he says, you, you're going to get persecuted. Well, they really didn't know. It says you're going to come before kings. None of them came before kings at the time of Jesus. All right? So it looks as though what's going on is that uh, Jesus is using these disciples as examples of all of the witnesses to Jesus to Israel. All right? And this is what's called uh, prolepsis. Because you have to have a nice word for it. Oh, I'll put the word up here. Okay. Pro, it's proleptic or prolepsis. Okay. And it just means that, that uh, you say something in advance of it happening. Yeah. And the Bible does quite a bit of that stuff. Uh, you want an example of, of that? Uh, John 14. Um, in my, um, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. But is he talking to you too? Yeah, you see. And if, uh, you know, I will come again and take you. Yes? Who's he talking to? Yeah, so, but he's also taking, talking to people in the future, do you see? Proleptic, that's, that's the idea there. That's what's going on here. And the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, which is accompanied with, by these miracles, by the way, notice that, is the preaching of Jesus is the Messiah, who's going to be the Davidic king bringing in, in the kingdom. Which means that at some time in the future, this is how I understand this, at some time in the future, there will be preaching going on of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is coming back, okay, to Israel. Jesus is coming back. He is the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to believe in him. Do you see? And there'll be some signs and so on, I think, too, of that happening. When will that happen? We haven't got there yet. But that's, that's to explain that little 
passage to you. All of this is very Israel-centered. Remember, don't go to the Gentiles. Go to Israel. All right. So, we have the church. Then, well, we've got the church. And here we are. A long time afterwards, but we're still, you know... I mean, we've got one punctured tire, we've got one wheel off, or hanging off, we're, you know, we're coughing and spluttering along, but we're just, you know, we're going along, okay? The church is not in terrific shape, and, you know, if you want my view, the church is, is due for a big nosedive soon. Okay? I think that, uh, that uh, there are very powerful, this is just my own personal view, uh, but some other people hold it. But I, I believe that, that many of the, the uh, celebrities and evangelical c- culture, I believe that they're in the pockets, conspiracy theory, they're in the pockets of, uh, of very wealthy and influential men. They've allowed themselves to be controlled by these people. And that's why you're seeing this move towards social justice happening in with these leaders. Okay, these evangelical leaders, and it's going to end badly. Okay, it's going to end badly. Um, But anyway, (coughs) that leads me into the fact that the next thing in is uh, we find in first, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two. So go to Second Thessalonians. So we've got the church bobbling along. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks about the man of sin, who we all get to, but what I'm concerned about here is, uh, is what he says about the apostasy. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you, by any means, for that day will not come, the day of our gathering together to Christ, unless a falling away comes first. Alright, a falling away comes first. So this is, the the word is uh, uh, an apostasy, apostasia, okay? Okay. it's a departure from a, you know, apo away from stasis standing position. Okay, it's a falling away or a departure from uh, the position that you once held. So, in line with many amillennialists, dispensationalists hold that there will be at some point a great apostasy. Okay, and I'm going to put it here, but we're talking about you know 2000 plus years, okay? We know that, okay? So, we got that. But there's going to be a great apostasy. Of the church, of, of, of believers. I believe that it's of, of believers and not just of people that go to church. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's it's not completely clear to me what that means, that apostasy. But I I do believe it's a falling away from the truth. Okay, a rebellion of the body of Christ. Uh, 
from the tr- from the truth of Scripture. Okay, and I I don't know when that's going to be, but and it's got to be in a sense. Has it got to be worldwide? Because there's great things happening. People are getting saved all over in, in the third world and so on. I don't know. I don't know. This is written to the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was in Greece. That's in the mainland of Europe. Was it talking about like Europe and the West and so on, where Christianity started? Possibly. I don't know. Some people interpret that uh, in a more, well, quite honestly, figurative way, spiritual way. Some dispensationalists go in for a figurative interpretation of, of that and they think that's a rapture passage. I think that's ridiculous. Okay, I think that's an abandonment of, of your hermeneutic. But anyway. <clears throat> but there'll be an apostasy. And uh, then it says... The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. I'm going to come back uh, to that, all right? But now I'm going to throw in here what most dispensational premillennialists believe happens after that, okay? (coughs) Excuse me. And because I believe that this is the body of Christ, I believe that that it has to come before the rapture. But then we have the rapture of the church, okay? So I'm going to put an arrow up, okay? And that's the rapture, okay? Now we're going to do the rapture later on and talk about the different views of the rapture. I believe that the rapture will be before the tribulation, okay? So I believe in a pre-tribulation Rapture. And most dispensationalists believe that. Okay? Uh, some dispensationalists believe in a halfway rapture, you know, mid trib. Some dispensationalists believe in what's called a pre wrath rapture, which is basically you go all the way to the end and, you know, then when things get really hairy, that's when you're plucked out of it, but things have been really bad for six and a half years up to that point. Uh, some believe in a post-tribulational rapture, but most believe in a pre-trib rapture for theological reasons. There are, even though they try and they try hard, they usually do an awfully bad job of giving you an exegetical reason for a pre-trib rapture. I don't think there is a re- an exegetical um, argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. I don't. I'll just tell you now that I don't think there is, and we'll go into that later. I don't think there's an exegetical argument for for the rapture per se, as far as when it's going to be. Only that it that it's going to be, okay? But that's that's moving beyond where we're going to be tonight. I think there are strong theological arguments for a pre-trib rapture. Um, so uh, we've got that there. Right. Now, if the church goes up, is taken up here, okay, what's going to happen to the church? Well, if you go to the book of Revelation in chapter 19, you will see that it speaks about 
A marriage of the Lamb. Do you see this? The marriage of the Lamb. 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made himself made herself ready. Alright, well, who's the Lamb? Christ, yes, Jesus. So, we know from other places, we're betrothed to Christ. That, that you know, uh, Ephesians 5 and so on, that uh, the church is the bride of Christ, yes? Betrothed to Christ. Do you, want, do you want to see that? You're okay with that? Ephesians 5 and so on. Uh, some, some dispensationalists don't go this way, but most of them do. Now, this means that, that uh, his wife is the church. Okay? And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and, and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So there's something, is, there's something before this, okay, that has to happen before this takes place, but I'll get to that in a minute. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. <coughs> and I fell on the feet to worship him and that wasn't a good idea to do. So, then you, after that you get the second coming, by the way. So, it appears that, that uh, one of the things the church is going to be doing is at this marriage feast of the Lamb. Alright? Uh, if you want to look, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 11, sorry, verse 2. I'll read it out to you. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to a one husband, that I pres- may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay, and then Ephesians 5.25. Um I should be able to quote it off the top of my head, but I'm not feeling very well. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Okay? So, I believe that that uh, the church, the body of Christ, is espoused to Christ, which wouldn't surprise me, you know, body of Christ, Christ, um, but not marriage yet. And the marriage will happen after sometime after the rapture. But before the marriage has to come, the bride has to, as it were, make herself ready. And how does she make herself ready? She makes herself ready, if we can use that terminology, at the beamer seat, (laughs) at the judgment seat of Christ. So go to... uh, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3... 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <coughs> and I'll write this in. Okay, let's see if orange works. Okay, so... Uh, let's see. Maybe I can write it this way. Marriage supper, okay. And in here, some somewhere, I'm going to put the the beamer seat. 
or the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Bema seat was a raised platform or dais that the judge sat on, okay, on a raised seat and he would judge people, he would award um, laurels and so on for games, athletics games from that place. So it'll be a place of rewards and punishments, all right? So this is the judgment seat of Christ, all right? Now, although that language isn't used, in 1 Corinthians 3, I think this is the strongest passage for that. It says in verse 11, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, that's got to be a Christian then, yeah? With gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, so the work is characterized by these elements, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, okay, stubble. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's Work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you might lose your rewards. Okay? Do you see that? Depends what kind of work you've done for the Lord. Have you served God? Okay? Don't think that, uh, you know, if you've basically been a couch potato in in your church service that you're going to get the same rewards as as John Wesley and George Whitfield. Okay? It's not going to happen. God is just. Alright? Or these people that are in prison for their faith and tortured. Okay? No. They'll get rewarded. You won't. Okay? <laughs> that's the way it goes and that's right because God's just. So that gives you an idea of, of that. Now if you go to Second uh, Corinthians 5, Second Corinthians 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of, you might have God there, or Christ, depending on your salvation, on your translation. But this is the judgment seat of Christ because it's written to Christians. That each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay? Talking basically about the same thing that he was talking about there. Yeah? So, you've got that. And then uh, another one, if you'll go to the letters of John at the back of your Bible, Second John 8. Second John verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but we may receive a full reward. Okay? You got that one? Second John 8. Have a quick look at it. <clears throat> and now you've, now you're there. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
verse 16 to 18, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. You see that? In that day. Future day. Well, what day is that? Judgment seat of Christ, I believe. The beamer seat. Okay, what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and following. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10. So you've got the judgment seat of Christ. I'm afraid that's, that's ahead for all, all of us. Okay? You're going to get saved. I, I personally believe that because you're not in Adam, you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation because you've already been justified by the decision of God. Okay? But you are going to get put through the mangle. Okay? It's going to happen, folks. I'm not particularly looking forward to that. Okay, but that's just going to happen. So, this is a spur to godliness and service. Alright? And then at some point, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know when it's going to be. Uh, but sometime in that period. What period, you may ask? That's a good question. And that period is going to be, we'll put it in red. Okay, the tribulation. I'm going to start it here. Because I believe that the tribulation starts right, right after the second coming. Right after the first coming. First coming here. Okay, and that's supposed to go all the way there. <clears throat> Alright? So this is the tribulation period. If, if I'm right about the pre-trib rapture, then the rapture happens, then the tribulation happens. Alright? Um, I mean, I, you know, maybe, maybe dispensationalists are wrong. Maybe there's going to be another several years, ten years before the truth. But I don't think so. Particularly, I don't think so because of that passage in Second Thessalonians two, which we'll now turn back to. Second <laughs> Thessalonians two. All right. Now this is written to the church, so now we're going to have a look at this at this passage. And he says, "Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if it was from us, as though the day of Christ, that's uh, just a synonym for the second coming, had come. Now, here we go. Notice here that, that even, this is one of the earliest letters of the Apostle Paul, written around 50, 51 AD, and he's warning them about false letters. Okay? The devil has been trying to, to uh, mix and compromise the truth ever since the beginning of the church. Don't think he's not doing it today. Okay? He's very busy doing it today. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, the day of Christ, unless the falling away comes first. That's why I put this apostasy here. 
and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay? The son of perdition or lawlessness. Uh, so the man of sin is is the son of perdition. Okay? It's just the two names given to him. And here's how you recognize him. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay? Do you, do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? Paul was only with the Thessalonians a short time, but he thought it was important enough to tell them this stuff. This is stuff, by the way, that a lot of uh, a lot of Bible teachers don't think is important at all, so they never teach it. Paul thought it was important enough to teach them, even though he was only in Thessalonica about three weeks. So, <coughs> you know, there'll be some surprises, I think, when we get to the judgment seat about what God thinks is important as over against what we tend to think is important. Yeah, Sometimes we don't put the, re- the emphasis where it ought to be or as much emphasis as where it ought to be. So you have this man of sin guy and uh, we'll put him in black. He has to be in black, doesn't he? Okay. So again, while this is happening up in glory in heaven because you know if the pre-trib rapture is correct that's what's where it's going to be obviously um, if the pre-trib rapture is wrong then it's not going to be going on but but uh, you have the the revealing of the man of sin all right And um, this day of Christ isn't going to happen until uh, the falling away comes first and this man of sin is, is revealed. Do you see that? He's characterized by uh, opposing God and, and uh, demanding worship as God sitting where? In the temple, that's right. So if he's sitting in the temple, that must surely mean that there must have to be a temple there for him to sit in. Alright? Which means that the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Okay? See that? Temple. And again, this is don't don't think that it's that because I put it there that this is in year two or year three. It could be in year one. I just you know don't want to write over the top of this stuff. So so the man of sin is going to be revealed here, and I think uh, because he's he's going to sit in the temple. Um, now, what do our millennialists do with that passage, which says that in the future there's going to be and before the second coming, it's going to be the man of sin, and he is going to sit in the temple and proclaim himself as God. Here's the answer. Okay? The man of sin is either the Pope, okay? That's been the traditional view, um, particularly post millennial view. 
um, or it's the Roman Catholic system, okay, or it is any anti-God system. That's kind of popular today with a lot of people. A lot of our millennialists believe it's a system. It's not an individual, just a system. All right? And um, what about sitting in the temple? Well, they don't believe the temple is going to be rebuilt. You see? So where where is the temple? Well, maybe it's the Vatican, maybe it's St. Peter's, but usually, you know, what? believe it or not, these people think that the temple is the church. Okay? The temple is the church because the church is now the temple of God, okay, in Jesus Christ, who is also, his body is a temple, you see? From John 2. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? First of all, it says this is a man, not a system. Secondly, he sits down on his bottom, I presume. <laughs> a system can't do that. On a seat, yes? Thirdly, you cannot sit down in a spiritual temple. Okay? Sitting down in a spiritual temple is the same as sitting down anywhere. I mean, on the ground or whatever, it's just, you know, sit down where? And further, he's a man of sin. What's he doing in the church? Now, it could be that if it's this man of sin gets, gets into power in the evangelical church, because the evangelical church is just stupid enough to go after one of these guys, yeah? That's perfectly possible, alright? So I'm not saying that that's not where it starts, but the church is not the temple. Do we have any clues as to what this, this might be speaking of? Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Because Jesus, I think, spoke to this. Matthew 24. This is the Olivet Discourse, just before he leaves, before he's the crucifixion and so on. <coughs> I'm going to speed through this passage, okay? Speed. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Notice, that's not a spiritual temple, that's a real one. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right, there you go. Verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is a little bit time later, his disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? First question. And... What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Second question. You could say there are three questions there, but the coming and the end of the age, they, they conflate those things together. They're correct to do that. Okay? And that's the Old Testament expectation when, when the, uh, the branch arrives and, you know, the, the, the ruler, the, the Messiah, when he arrives, there will be the end of the age. Okay? So that's what, it's, it's one question basically. All right, here's the answer that he gives. Jesus answered and said to him, Take heed that no one deceives you, 
For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So what's he talking about? What? He's talking about what? The end. Which is what they've asked him about. The end of the age, yes? You see that? So, it doesn't appear then that he's answering the first question. Tell us when will these things be? That is, that the temple blocks are going to get knocked down. Okay? Let's see as we continue what, what he says. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. If that's... Um, if that is not a compacted view within a certain time frame, that's a completely frivolous and pointless thing to say. Because I can say that. Anyone can say that. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Duh. I mean, that's the history of the world, isn't it? You don't have to be a prophet to say that. So I think here he's got something else in mind. He's talking about a concentrated time when this is just really in view. But uh, notice that he says, uh, there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. This is concentrated. Do you see that? This is not spread over a 2,000 year period. This is concentrated. It's so noticeable. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So there's going to be a beginning of sorrows which is future to the end. Okay? When's this beginning of sorrows? I don't know, but I will guess. Okay? We'll do it in green. Even though you can't see it. Okay, I believe the beginning of sorrows will be somewhere in this area here. Okay, well, just put it in there. Beginning of sorrows. And by that is meant all of these diverse earthquakes and wars and, and just really in the intensification of, of things. Okay, I, begin, I believe it's at the beginning of the tribulation. Okay, that's the beginning of sorrow. That's what I believe he's talking about. <clears throat> I might be wrong there. Okay? But I'm not. <laughs> no, 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 I might be wrong ab- about some of these things, but that's where I would put that. And there's a reason for that. As we go on, I'll, I'll show you. Uh, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, that, you know, did that happen? Well, it kind of happened to the disciples somewhat. We don't know all of their histories, really, but but uh, certainly they were killed and they, they endured trouble. Um, were they hated by all nations for his name's sake? I don't know. That's probably a bit of hyperbole. But who? maybe he's not talking to the, just the disciples because in the context of the end, again, maybe this is prolepsis. Maybe the you is people in the future at the time of the end. Do you see? 
then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise, will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Again, you know, you can, you can look anywhere for this to happen generally. So I don't think it's, he's talking about something general. He's talking about something that is particularly focused on Israel and uh, circumstances before his second coming. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jehovah's Witness' favorite verse. Okay, apart from they rip it out of its context. Now we'll look what he says. And this gospel of the kingdom. What gospel of the kingdom, Jesus? The one he's been preaching. The one that John the Baptist was preaching. The one that the twelve were preaching. That Jesus is the Christ and the kingdom's coming. But you need to accept him as the Messiah. Okay? Repent. will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. This is not a missionary verse. I know it's taken as a missionary verse, but it's not a missionary verse. In the context, it has to do with Israel and it has to do with the end. Okay? So there's, there's one picture for you. Okay, you've got this beginning of sorrows thing going on here and you've got the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Shall I put that in just to annoy everybody? The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And there's a, that's the Now, the gospel of the kingdom preaching is that Jesus is coming. Or Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then the end comes. Verse 15. Therefore, when you, who? The disciples? Hmm... See, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And to him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. And I'll read the rest of that in a minute. So we have to identify this abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel who, by the way, is called a prophet. Okay, I, I mention that because there are some Old Testament scholars, particularly of the liberal sort, who say Daniel wasn't a prophet. Well, I'm going to believe Jesus over you. Okay? Um, so let's go to Daniel. Let's have a look at, at uh, what Daniel says about the abomination of desolation. You say, well, we're, we're flipping backwards and forwards throughout the Bible. Yeah, because, because we're trying to identify these different things that are spoken about, aren't we? Okay, so if, if Jesus says Daniel the prophet, it's a good idea to go to Daniel the prophet. So let's have a look if we can see the abomination of desolation. We see it, 
somewhat in chapter 9 of Daniel. Daniel 9. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the 70 weeks, and I'm not going to go into that. But in verse 27, it says, Then he, whoever he is, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Um, And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. So it's not really the abomination of desolation. Do you see? It's a different kind of wording. But those two words are are in there. I don't think that that is a very clear reference to the abomination of desolation. All right? Uh, And even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I do believe that that is a reference to uh, the, the, the one who shall confirm a covenant and then stop the sacrifice. I believe that's the Antichrist. And I believe that he makes a covenant with the Jewish people to rebuild the temple and then halfway through he stops it in the middle of the week. Okay? Yeah? We'll get to that in a minute. So that's what I think that's referring to but I don't think that that's necessarily the abomination of desolation because it's not it's not a thing. You know, when you see it in the holy place well you're not seeing anything in the holy place in, in 927. So we've got to go somewhere else in Daniel uh, to get to get this again. And let's go to chapter 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 12 is, uh, I would say, certainly about the second coming. Oh. Or about times before the second coming. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, who are Daniel's people, Jews, and there shall be a time of trouble, such was never, such as never was, since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of death shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn away. Uh, turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Some kind of resurrection going on and a judgment going on there. And then uh, he continues, but you, Daniel, shut up the words of the, uh, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, these are um, angelic guides who are giving, showing him this stuff, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, if if we can't figure out time, times, and half a time, I don't know what this guy's swearing about. Because it's pointless. You might as well swear about, uh, you know, something that nobody knows. 
and still keep it a mystery from everybody. It's like, why the big song and dance? Okay? I mean, if he's swearing an oath about something, it's something that's important, isn't it? And if it's important, tell us about it, you know? Otherwise, don't, don't go through this palaver without telling us what you're swearing about. Well, it's going to be for a time, times and half a time. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. The holy people in Daniel is going to be Israel, the elect of Israel. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said to my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up. Oh, that's a contender right there for what Jesus is referring to. Because he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Well, this seems to be uh, pretty temply, doesn't it? Yeah, sacrifice taken away. When you see the sacrifice taken away and this abomination of desolation set up, ah, that's what it, it, Jesus is referring to. There shall be 1,290 days. <coughs> Blessed is who, who who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, a bit longer. Okay? But go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days, which is an interesting reference in itself. Don't worry about the the thousand day stuff, okay? I'm not going to get to that tonight. But what I am going to talk about is the abominations of desolation, and notice it's linked to the daily sacrifice taken away. We read about the daily sacrifice being stopped, by the one who makes the covenant in Daniel chapter 9. I believe that that's the Antichrist. He stops it in the middle of the week. A week there, I believe, is uh, uh, stands for seven years. Okay, this, The days stand for a year each. Seven years, which means that this abomination of desolation is set up halfway through the tribulation. Okay, at three and a half years. Okay, I'll put that here. Okay, so what what colour can I choose for that? Let's try brown. This is getting busy now, isn't it? I know, I understand that. Okay, so we're not going to, I'm going to, abomination of desolation is going to be A of D. Okay, so A of D is set up. Where's it set up? In the temple. Okay? In the holy place. That's not the church, folks. Okay? That matches Second Thessalonians 2. Alright. <coughs> Go back to uh, Matthew 24.
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea, not Northern California, flee to the mountains. This is Israel focused. Let him who is on the housetop. We don't kind of live on the housetops, but they do over there. Okay? Not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to take his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. What Sabbath is that? Sunday? No. There's no Christian Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath is Saturday. It's Jewish. Why would you pray that it wouldn't happen on the Sabbath day? Yeah, because they're all kicking back and, you know, not doing anything. You see, they'll be taken unawares, you see. So, this is all Israel-focused. Then he, he goes into some description, verse 21. For then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Who does that sound like? Or what does that sound like? Did it remind you of something I just read? In Daniel 12. It's not exactly the same, but it's it's very close to the same. Yes? Um, If you want another reference that's like that, you don't have to turn to it, but it's in Jeremiah chapter 30. I'll just read it to you. And uh, it says, uh, "Alas, verse seven, for the day that day is great, so none is like it. Some of the same kind of language, okay? No other pl- time like this. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. That's Israel. Jacob is Israel, but he shall be saved out of it." Um. These are, this is the same stuff. It's what we call a tribulation. But, we do have to notice something that's going on here, okay? And that is that, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of sin is revealed, okay, kind of after the falling away. Yes? But, the description of, this, of the man of sin, the son of perdition, is that he boasts that he's God. He, goes, he enters the temple of God and boasts. Um, the abomination of desolation is an image that is set up, or something that's set up, okay, that causes, and the sacrifices are, are ceased there, the temple stops operating as a Jewish temple, and uh, there is persecution that is set up at this time. Yes? Okay, what I believe is going on is that this man of sin does not declare himself as God until this this image is set up. Until the halfway point of the tribulation, in other words. So there's three and a half years that um, this man of sin is in covenant with the nation of Israel, and they're operating in that temple. 
he breaks it in the middle of the week, that three and a half year period. So that's when he's doing that. So what Paul's saying in in uh, brief in one verse in Second Thessalonians two is there's a division of you know three or four years between that, maybe even more. So it's kind of a generic, general thing. I mean, the apostasy is maybe not going to happen in one year. It could happen in five years, ten years, couldn't it? So there's a general downturn, a rebellion in the church, and then the man of sin will be revealed. He doesn't speak about necessarily the rapture there. He does talk about our gathering to him, so he may be alluding to it at that point, but it's, you know, we're not sure. And again, when I get to the rapture, we'll come back to that verse. All right, but we're in, in Matthew 24 at the moment. Let's get a little bit more detail here. Then there shall be great tribulation. When? At this halfway point. Okay? So many people have said, this is, this is a seven-year tribulation, but it really intensifies and gets really bad in the second three and a half years. So they call that Second part, the great tribulation after what Jesus is referring to here. Alright? <clears throat> Verse 22, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Who are the elect? Is it the church? No, in this context, it's Israel. <coughs> in this context, it's Israel. Israel are called God's elect in the book of Isaiah. Well, at least the, the elect ones are. And, um, and it says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Who's the elect? Israel. People in Israel. Now that goes back to what he was saying here. Many will come in my name, saying I am Christ and deceive many earlier on. Now we get... Get it? That this is happening in this tribulation period, you see? See the concentration? Alright? See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, and notice the you must be proleptic here. Okay? Again, it must be you in the future. In this generation. Look, he is in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Why not? He's got to be somewhere, hasn't he? Well, because of what he says. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is your second coming. Alright? And for more on that, he says, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Uh, what does he mean by that? Um, you know, eagles, you don't, eagles are generally not carrion birds. Um, so whether he actually means eagles like our eagles, or it's a generic term for, uh, bird, carrion birds, um, vultures and stuff, yeah, which is, I think, what he's talking about. Remember, he's not using the Linnaeus system of categorization here. Okay? <laughs> But, but, uh, general, you know, birds of prey like that, eagles. Uh, what he's saying is it's pretty obvious. Okay? Where the carcass is, that's where the vultures are gonna be. Alright? You expect one will bring about the other. So, in the same way, 
when you see this stuff happening, know that the coming of Christ is just about round the corner. That's what he's saying. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. A lot of Christians don't believe that. They think this is apocalyptic language. It's figurative. It's symbolic. It doesn't mean that really. I think that's, I think they're wrong. And, you know, I was going to say something else, but I'll just say I think they're wrong. I think this will happen. We're talking about the creator of the universe here. He can do whatever he wants. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Please remember that. Please remember that. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Alright, so... That's Jesus' view of the tribulation. There's a bit more going on here, I understand. And the, the generation and the, the, uh, the parable of the fig tree, that's not talking about the planting of Israel in 1948. Okay? That's talking about the context of the tribulation later on. Okay? This generation of verse 20, 34 is the generation he's been talking about that's going through this stuff. Alright? Not the generation that he's talking to. Remember, he says, when you, the disciples, see this stuff, well, they're not going to see it. They've died and gone to heaven already. The you is the people that are in the generation that sees it. I don't know why, honestly, I don't know why biblical interpreters have such a problem with this. Just pay attention. Okay? Just pay attention. Obviously, the you is proleptic here. Anyway. Uh, so let's, what, what we have now then is the second coming and we understand that the second coming is going to be um, like completely obvious, alright? I mean, unmissable. So you have the tribulation happening. I believe it's going to be a seven year tribulation because the covenant is made for one week, which is seven years, but in the middle of that week, it's going to be broken. I think it's going to be broken because this guy sets up an image of himself here and proclaims himself as God, goes into the temple of God, saying that he is God, and so on and so forth. Yes? That's what I believe. Now, we've got to fill in some of this detail, and we're going to do that by going back to Daniel. Okay? Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Okay. We're fine. I've only got another two hours of material to go and we'll be home. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Uh, if indeed they were facts, because there's a bunch of people, evangelicals, that, that believe this again is apocalyptic stuff, and it's all symbolic, and who knows what it means. 
Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in the in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And uh, he describes them. They're all weird. Okay, They're all actually impossible. They're impossible beasts. Okay, One of them has iron teeth. Okay, and iron claws. They're impossible beasts, so they're obviously figurative. Okay, and they represent different empires. They represent Medo-Persia, they represent, uh, sorry, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, but there's something weird about the, the fourth one, because the fourth one has ten horns. And he's going to hone in on the horns. And it says, verse 8, as I was considering the horns, there was another another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the uh, first horns were plucked out by the roots, utterly displaced. So, one horn comes up after these ten horns are in place, and he displaces three of these horns. I know it's weird, but just get the picture, okay? And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. He's on this kind of chariot thing. Okay? Just like in Ezekiel. You don't, don't get the, all the cherubims are not described, but it's, it's kind of like that. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain. That's the one in verse 7. And its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I don't really understand that verse. Okay? I mean, I might as well tell you now. Now, I don't know what that means. Okay? I've read the commentators on it, and some of them sound better than others, but I still don't know what this means. But I believe that people will when it happens. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Who just said that? We just read that. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus just said that in Matthew 24. Okay, second coming here. And he was talking about what? The tribulation, wasn't he? Yeah? He came to the ancients of, of days, they brought him near before him, then to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one that shall not be destroyed. When does he get this kingdom? Second coming. It's so obvious. So this is why in here we have the age of the kingdom. Okay? 
That's pre-millennial. Okay? Pre-millennial. Well, I believe this is a millennial kingdom that then goes on to be the new heavens and new earth. And we may have time to get to that and may not. <clears throat> All right. Verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So if you want to know about the beasties, you're going to be given the interpretation. At least the one that counts. Okay, You're not going to have all of your questions answered, but you're going to be given the... the uh, you're going to be given the gist. So here it is. Those great beasts, verse 17, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Who are the saints of the Most High? Not the church, because Daniel doesn't know anything about the church. It's Israel, okay? Israel are the saints of the Most High. And they receive the kingdom, because the Davidic covenant promises them a a kingdom, okay? And so, it's going to be here, okay? Now, if I'm right about the saints of the Most High being Israel, then we can put... Israel in here, can't we? Alright? Can you see that, Israel? I've written in orange just so you can't see it. Okay. Verse 19, Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, uh, before which three fell, namely the horn that had eyes and a mouth, and which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. By the way, notice that when he says his appearance was greater or stouter than these fellows, he's giving you a bit more information than he did earlier. Well, I'd like to know all that stuff too. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. He's going against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The Ancient of Days came, and this is, I believe, this point here, the second coming of Christ. Okay? The action of God to to send Christ back, if you want. Thus he said, so here's here's his answer to uh, Daniel's question. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. Well, the Roman Empire didn't trample over the whole globe, but maybe the angel's not talking about the whole globe. Maybe he's talking about the Mediterranean world, which was the whole earth that he's concerned about there. Yeah? The Roman Empire 
Okay, it was greater in the east than it was in the west, but it covered the, the west up until up to Scotland and covered you know, significant parts of the east as well. It was, it was the biggest empire to that time. <coughs> and it says, uh, am I on verse 24 now? Yeah. The ten horns are ten kings. Okay, so this beast is not a real a real animal, it's obviously figurative, but it's being explained to you, or at least the main parts of it are being explain, explained to you. Ten kings, who shall shall arise from this kingdom. And uh, our millennialists like to say that's ten Caesars. Well, there weren't ten Caesars, there were more than ten Caesars, and, and it doesn't fit what they're trying to do with this. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. <coughs> That's the third time we've heard this about this chap, who we now know is a king, so he's a man. Okay. Where else in the Bible do we hear about somebody speaking blasphemies or pompous words against God? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, when the son of man, the man of sin, sorry, the man of sin, not the son of man, the man of sin, the son of perdition, sets himself up as if he's God, and he blasphemes, yes, in the temple of God. I believe that's what this uh, little horn is. It's, it's him. And it says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. So Jesus says to people, woe to those that are in Judea. Okay? And that are on the housetop. Get out of there. Why? Because this guy, this little horn, is going to persecute you. Okay? Do you see how it fits? <coughs> And shall ch- intend to change times and law. That will be evident when it happens, by the way. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. We read that. Remember, that's the oath that that guy was swearing. And uh, we said, well, if it doesn't mean anything that we can figure out, then what's the point in him going through that? It's just an exhibition, isn't it? Uh, well, here we are again. Time, times, half a time. What does it mean? We'll have a look at it in a minute. But the court shall be seated. This is some kind of a uh, a spiritual court, assembly of some sort. And they shall take away his dominion, that's the little horn, to consume and to destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, now there's the whole earth, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, is this saying that Israel will rule the world? No, I don't think so. But it is saying that the king of Israel will rule the whole world and Israel's going to be the top nation. Okay? In a sense, and some people are really going to hate this, but in a sense... Uh, the the empire is going to be the Israeli empire under Messiah. 
Okay? <clears throat> it's not all Israel, but it will be the Israeli Empire just as sure as it was the Roman Empire or the Babylonian Empire. Okay? And I'm cool with that. I'm good with that. Jesus is a Jew. So... Um, and so the, the saints, the Most High, are going to get that and are going to serve Him. This is the end of the account, so He's, you know, He's troubled by it and so on. So what we have, therefore, is this little horn, who is described as coming from the fourth kingdom. It's not the same little horn as, as you see in the next chapter, who doesn't come from the Roman from Rome. He comes from Greece, so it's a different little horn. Okay, um, and uh, we hear about time, times, and half a time. So let's look at that, because you also find that in the book of Revelation, by the way. Uh, Alright, this is actually easier to figure out than you think it is. Alright, just need to put your thinking cap on for a second, and, uh, and we can do this. So, let's write it up here. Okay, time equals and then times equals, and then half a time equals, okay, we'll get rid of proleptic. (coughs) The way to figure this out is by going here first. Okay? What must times be in order to make sense of this? Well, yeah, but but what must it be? More than one or two. Okay? What if it was 597? Then what would that be? That would be... You've you got no idea. You know? And what would that be? Well, half of that, but who knows what that is? You know, if that's a year, that's, well, all right, 598 and a half. You see how, how ridiculous it gets? It's like, well, what's the point of that? You know? In other words, because we don't know what this is, there's only one way that it, of knowing what it is, and that's by making it twice that. Okay? So, let's say times equals two then that equals one, and that equals a half of one. And so the whole thing equals three and a half. That's the only thing that can make sense. Otherwise, you might as well, you know, not even write it. Because it won't be worth anything. Okay, three and a half. What use is that? Quite a lot of use, actually, because it's exactly that time period down there. Do you see? Of the Great Tribulation. See, it fits together, doesn't it? Okay, it fits together. <coughs> All right. I think we can do this. That's what I think. <laughs> All right. So, at least what we can do is that we can get to, uh, uh, where I want to get to is, is a second coming tonight. Okay, and then we'll have to do more afterwards. So, uh, go to the book of Revelation now.
And first of all, go to Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to give you an interpretation of Revelation chapter 6, which not every dispensationalist holds. And I might be wrong, but I think they're wrong. And I'll tell you why, because of of the way that this escalates, okay? So this is my interpretation of this. Um, Verse 2, Behold, a white horse... He who sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. I believe that is the appearance of the man of sin. Okay? Right at the beginning of the tribulation. He's going forth here. He's prospering. How do I know he's a bad guy? He's on a white horse. Maybe he's a good guy. Well, because of the people that follow him. Okay? He doesn't keep good company. Verse 3. Of verse 4, another horse, fiery red, went out. He took peace from the earth that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. Remember Jesus said that people will be against each other and they'll betray each other and so on? That's talking about, that's this here. It's just done in a more symbolic way. Next one, third horse. He's a black horse. He was sat and it had a pair of scales in his hand. Okay, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. In other words, they're going to have to pay through the nose to get basic foodstuffs. But oil and wine, which are used by the rich people, they'll be fine. Okay? <clears throat> Um, that's how I view that. So there's going to be famine. And then verse 7, verse 8, I looked and a pale horse and the name of him who sat on him was not Clint Eastwood, but was death and Hades followed him. And power was given him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and hunger and death and by the beasts of the earth. So this this fourth rider is, uh, seems to be kind of the one who, who is in control of the others, or the other two there. Maybe also the, the white horse rider. I don't, I don't know. It's kind of weird. But you understand the basic idea. Forget the horses. What you've got is a white horse rider conquering. You've got oh, some guy conquering. You've got um, people at each other's throats you've got famine, and you've got disease and pestilence and famine and stuff, yeah? Death generally, mayhem. Okay? That is the opening shots, as it were, of the tribulation, I believe. Fifth seal, souls under the altar slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. Okay, well, if they're slain, that's probable, in my understanding of this, that this happens in this area, okay? When they're told to flee. I believe the souls here, they're not all Jews, they're they're also people that uh, are hearing the message and repenting and trusting that Jesus is coming back, but that will come over here. So that means that the 
the horse riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's the first three and a half years. So this time is a time of tribulation. You remember Jesus said earthquakes and various places, nasty things happening and so on? It's intensified. That's happening here. It's not a nice time. Okay? Um, the Jews may have their temple rebuilt, but everything else is going to pop. And um, it continues here. So, you have the soul slain, and they cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? People on the earth are killing them. Okay? And they're given white robes and told to be quiet for a minute. Then you have the sixth one. And there's a great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth as hair, and the moon became blood, and stars of hell, heaven fell to the earth. Well, Jesus said that's the sign of his second coming. In Matthew 24, we just read it. So, to me, this is a, a quick shifty through the whole seven years tribulation, here in chapter 6. Okay? <coughs> and ending with the sky coming, uh, being rolled up, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders and so on, going into the rocks and mountains, uh, hiding themselves from the wrath of the Lamb, verse 16, that's the second coming of Christ. Okay, the day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand, answer, nobody. Second coming of Christ, you read about that, chapter 19, verse 11 and following. All right. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is uh, as a parenthesis in the book of Revelation that hones in on a particular thing that's going on, okay? And it talks about the sealing of 144,000 Jews. How do we know they're Jews? Because he calls them Jews. Because they're from tribes that are Jewish, recognizably in the rest of the Bible, Okay? And we know there are 14 tribes of Israel because they can switch them here, there and everywhere because of the Manasseh stuff. Uh, so you can switch them out. Okay, but there's still 12 tribes of Israel as far as, you know, you can recognize that these are all tribes. And 12,000 from each, that's 144,000 of the children of Israel. So I believe that it's 144,000 of the children of Israel. From these tribes. I know. I believe these are the ones who are going to go forth ministering and witnessing and preaching the king, the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? Now, it doesn't say that they're going to do that, so I'm jumping to conclusions there. I, I'm just assuming it. I'm assuming these are the you. They're kind of like the disciples who were sent out. Yeah? In Matthew chapter 10 and so on. They're going out and they're preaching. Not just in Israel, but, but all over the place. Um, there may not be. I mean, there may just be 144,000 sealed and that's, that's it. They just happen to be protected and that's good for them, yeah? So I'm giving them something to do. <clears throat> After these things I looked and behold a great number which no, uh, no one could number multitude that no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with the white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out 
with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And wonderful thing, that's the nations. Now, if you're an amillennialist, by the way, you believe that the great multitude that you can't number is the small multitude of 144,000 that you can number. So the innumerable multitude is the numerable multitude. Why? Because they don't believe that there's a future for ethnic Israel, so they've got to spiritualize uh, the tribes there, 144,000, and they do it by uh, numerology, which is not given anywhere in the Bible, and they come up with, uh, it's the same as the great multitude from every tribe and nation. That's how you basically... Uh, that it's an alchemy, basically. It's hermeneutical alchemy. You you turn the clear words of God into something that is different than what it just said. Okay, I prefer to say that the two separate groups, because the Bible makes them two separate groups. Okay, otherwise, why why even list the the tribes? It'd be pointless, wouldn't it? It's like just look. Papyrus costs a lot of money. John, stop wasting time. You know, stop wasting space and ink here. Just get on with it. <clears throat> anyway, so there's that, there's that that's going on. So we know that the tribes of Israel are okay. At least, you know, they're secure. Although they're all men, we find out from chapter 14. So hopefully some women get through too. All right, but um, it, it moves on here and you have the trumpets going on, there's a lot of nasty stuff going on, things getting burned up and poisoned and blood and it's 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 bad stuff that's happening. Okay? And uh, what I think is in chapter six you get uh, a, a kind of a survey of, of the tribulation. Chapter seven you, you get the ceiling of hundred and forty four thousand Jews at some point. And then you have the trumpet judgments, okay, and the trumpet judgments uh, give you nasty things that are going on, okay, and uh, including some really weird scorpion beasties that come out and start stinging people, <coughs> and an army of uh, horsemen, two hundred million, in verse sixteen of chapter nine. Uh, this this interesting chappy in uh, chapter 9, who is the king of the bottomless pit. Okay, he comes out of the bottomless pit. And um, <coughs> he's an interesting chap. Because later on, this guy who comes out of the bottomless pit is called the angel of the bottomless pit. And he's called the beast in verse 7 of chapter 11. See that? When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will take, make war against them, overcome them and kill them. Um, these are the two witnesses that witness in Jerusalem in chapter 11. Very Israel-centered. Again, I think the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. I think that's very clear. Moses and everyone, anyone else is, a, I don't understand where your thinking is. You know, just read your Bibles, for goodness sake. This is not difficult stuff. Um, who's the angel of the bottomless pit then? If he can overcome these, these uh, prophets who are calling down fire and turning things to blood, he's a powerful guy. I believe he's the Antichrist. May not be, but I believe he's the Antichrist. Okay, so we're in the second half 
probably the tribulation here. Then we have uh, verse 12, we have a, another kind of parenthesis thing going on, and it's of a great, as a woman clothed uh, with the sun, moon under her feet, and uh, 12 stars. It's not difficult to figure out who that is, folks. All you need to do is go back to Joseph's vision in Genesis 37. It's Israel. Okay? It's not the church. It's Israel. Again, why don't people just read their Bibles and believe it? That's not difficult to figure out. And she's pregnant. She's about to deliver. And uh, then you see this fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew the third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. This, I think you can figure this out. Personally, uh, as well as this uh, dragon being identified as Satan in verse 9, um, this is the first coming of Christ. Israel, you know, Christ comes from Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. Alright, so Christ comes from Israel. That's why she's pregnant. First coming, Christ is in the world and uh, Satan's trying to kill him. And third of the stars of heaven. Who are the stars? Well, in the book of Revelation, the stars are angels. Okay? So, at least many times, yeah, they're angels. And... Um, so these are obviously fallen angels, demons. There were lots of demons around in Jesus' time. You know, you may have noticed as you were reading. So that's what this is talking about. He wants to kill the child. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's Christ. Second coming. Yeah, that was, I mean, he'll do that at his second coming. Her child was caught up to the to God in his throne. When? When he ascended. I mean, I know a lot of details being cut out here, but you get the picture. This is not difficult. Some people say that male child's the church. You know, it's like you want to slap him. I mean, it's like, this is not difficult. Why make it so, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just that it's not, it's not that hard to figure out. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Who's the woman? Israel. Fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. Now, did this happen at the first coming of Christ? No. But since God started to deal with the church right after the first coming of Christ, maybe this is over going over this and going back to when God is going to deal with Israel again, okay, in the tribulation. If this is a, a reason for the pre-tribulational rapture, that God is not dealing with the church anymore, so he's free to deal with Israel. Do you see? There's your theological reason for that. Um, and... Uh, it says here... 
that war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That old, uh, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, I'm going to draw, draw this. I believe this happens here. Okay, Satan cast down. And probably downcast too. Alright? Here, three and a half years. That's why there's a change in the Antichrist. That's why there's a change going on down here. And Israel gets persecuted. And we see it pictured here in what comes up. Because uh, it says, uh, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives till death so there's still some die, dying and killing going on Okay. therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I know how long he's got. He's got three and a half years. He's got a time, times and a half a time, I believe. Okay? <clears throat> now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's Israel. He's persecuting the, the woman. How is he persecuting them? We'll find out in the next chapter, but I'll just cut to the chase and tell you, tell you that he persecutes through the Antichrist, who he kind of controls, takes over. Okay? Which, which is why there's a change in the demeanor of the Antichrist. Okay? And, um, Where am I? Alright, verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time. Whoa! From the presence of the serpent. Now you're supposed to know what time, times and half a time is if you've read the book of Daniel. But some people read the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation they still don't know what a time, times and half a time is. Why? Because they don't want to know. That's why. But here, the dragon is chasing the woman. The woman is protected for a time, times and half a time. That fits in with this. You're supposed to be able to put this together. From the presence of the serpent. Now you say, well, you've got a woman here who's a weird woman and she's given eagle's wings and she flies... Yeah, because it's a picture. It's a picture of Israel okay, being assisted by God to flee away from the dragon to a safe place. <clears throat> so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by a flood. Is this a literal flood? I believe it is. You say, well, it's not a literal serpent. Actually, it is. Whether he's got seven heads, I don't, that, might, that might be a little bit... Uh, OTT, but um, you know, but I think the water's literal. He's trying to flood her out. And remember, he says that, that the end will be with a flood in uh, uh, Daniel 9. 
says that. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So there's going to be an earthquake, just like with the sons of Korah, although the sons of Korah aren't going to go down, the water's going to go down. And the dragon was enraged against the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he can't get these people of Israel, but he's going against saints elsewhere in the world now. Okay? Chapter 13. We're going to stop after this. Alright? Because my voice is giving up and we're getting late. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And we think, oh boy, not again. (laughs) And on his heads ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Alright, fair enough. But we can be confident because we're going to get an interpretation. So just stick with it. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. So it's a him. His throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Now, just, you know, with a hydra, you could cut one of the heads off and it would die. Okay, you just had to get the right head because the others would grow back again. So this, if if you like, uh, he gets the right head because this thing dies. This man dies. Uh, the deadly wounds healed. Well, hold on, if he dies and the deadly wounds healed, that means he rises from the dead. That's interesting. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Well, he's called the beast. Okay? Now, maybe he's called the beast because he's called the beast and he's a weird beast in 13.1, but just notice that, okay? So they worship the dragon. This is what Satan wants. He wants worship. Who gave authority to the beast? They know where this, the power comes from. They know that he got uh, brought back to life by the dragon. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. Well, just like the little horn. Just like the man of sin. Can make a connection? It's not that difficult to make these connections, folks. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. All right, that fits right in with here, doesn't it? Um, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name his tabernacle that's probably his tabernacle in heaven and those who dwell in heaven it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them just like Daniel says in Daniel 7 and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. This is a judgment. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and faith with the saints. There are certain things that must happen, folks. I don't understand it. 
But certain things must happen. Nasty things must happen in God's plan. God will probably answer that question later, but there are certain things in the plan of God that must happen. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell on the earth to worship the beast and whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man, just like Elijah did. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. That, I believe, that image is the abomination of desolation that is set up here. So, or around here. So, this is where I'm not quite sure. Okay, Obviously, the, the uh, Antichrist, who, uh, who's blaspheming and going against the saints... I mean, I think I've got, he, that happens in the three and a half years, because he, I know Satan has just a short time. He's got three and a half years. So I think that happens here. But the making of the image might happen sometime afterwards. I don't know. Um, I, it seems to happen very quickly. But, but, uh, the false prophet is in power doing these things. And it seems to me that the, the world is being deceived very quickly into making this image. But obviously the, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have to be there before the image is made. Does that make sense? So within months maybe this image is set up. I don't, I don't know. I can't. It's, it's, it's there or thereabouts. <coughs> um, all right. I don't even know where I am now. Uh, verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That's weird. That's magic. Okay? Isn't it? He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except that one has the mark or the name of the beast, so people will know his name, or the number of his name. He'll have a number um, that, that is connected to, to his name, that identifies him. This is his number. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. So the beast is a man. Okay? His number is 666. So if you have the number of his name, you have 666. Okay? Somewhere. Um, probably on your right hand or on your forehead. Or you have his name. Or you have a mark. You say, what's a mark? I don't know. I'll tell you this, the beast is a leopard. He's mainly a leopard, so maybe it's, what's the mark of the leopard? Yeah, a spot. Okay? 
So maybe it's like a leopard spot. I don't know. That's a little speculation, Hennebury-ish <laughs> speculation for you. Okay. Uh, so send in your donations and, and it, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I don't know about that. But 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 it'll be all clear then. But this this horrible scenario of the beast, the you know who is the Antichrist. He has different names. It's ended by the second coming of Christ. Do you see? That's when salvation comes to the saints of God who are Israel, but also, of course, many people that are converted through the testimony of the 144,000 and of the preaching of the gospel that goes forward. That, by the way, is the beginning of Israel doing what it's supposed to do in the very first place in Exodus 19, being a kingdom of priests and, uh, uh, you know, light to the nations. Not fully, not, not being priests, but they're, they're, they are, as it were, they are in a sense uh, sending, you know, they're the mouthpieces of, of God. So they're teaching the truth of God which is one of the functions of priests, and they are bringing light to the nations and saving the nations and gathering the nations, um, or people from the nations. The more to say on that, we're going to finish there at the second coming of Christ. But I, I want to do more in the book of Revelation next week to kind of fill out this picture. Okay? As if you had not enough. But... Uh, let's close that off for tonight. Any quick questions or <clears throat> can I rest my voice? All right.